Hello, everyone, and welcome to Interdisciplinary Season 7, Episode 5-ish. I should maybe know this because I am Rebecca Sturgeon. I am the editor of this podcast and also Heal Wells Education Director. I'm joined here with Corey Rivera, Heal Wells Education Coordinator, and uh, this is season, season 7, Episode something. It'll be on the It'll be on the show notes if that's really important for y'all. Um, so as you know, this is Heal Well's podcast, healthcare podcast, where um, we say the quiet things loud, we say the loud things loud, we talk loud, and sorry, you might want to turn down the volume. This is your warning. Um, so as you know, we do start every show with a pun. And, um, you know, Corey and our guest, who will reveal herself shortly, I was singing in the shower this morning and it was fun until I got soap in my mouth. And then it was a soap opera. (laughs) (laughs) Hygiene and music. Very cute. (laughs) That's better than, you know, my um, puns usually do. I I know, I know you all just really want Cal Kate's here for the puns and I swear they're coming back. Um, But uh, I want to just get right into our very exciting guest today, who is also going to be a speaker. I'm very excited about this about at our symposium in September. This is Healwell's Healthcare and Intimacy online one day symposium, where um, we are just going to dig into all kinds of topics surrounding um, sexuality and intimacy and what that means for you as a healthcare provider um, and how to be a supportive human. So our guest today is Nellie Galindo, and Nellie, I would love for you to introduce yourself to the peoples and tell us about you. Yay! Well, thank you so much for having me and for inviting me on here. Um, This is always exciting. I've been on a smattering of podcasts, and I don't know, it always makes you feel a little bit like a celebrity, so thank you for having me. Um, yes, my name is Nellie Galindo. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, and I like to think of myself or identify myself as a sexuality educator and a disability rights activist. And I am very lucky to have found a path where I can cross those over together. That's That's been wonderful. Um, so yes, in my I guess my professional life, you know, I have like my day job, my nine to five, but I also have my own business called Accessible Sexual Health, um, where we provide um, education and training to disability providers, um, individuals with disabilities, folks who love people with disabilities, who want to support people with disabilities, um, giving them sex positive, disability affirming, um, comprehensive sexual health education. Um, So that's really kind of our mission, what we seek to do. Um, Yeah, and it's been very exciting. And I'm excited to kind of share this passion and this topic with y'all. Oh, this is wonderful. So, um, well, uh, there are so many questions. Um, (laughs) I'm always interested in origin stories, you know, um, of any, any human. So I wonder if you could share with us a little bit of your origin story and how this intersection of sexuality education and disability rights work became the thing. Yes. Oh, it's, it's a long winding road and I do love to talk about it. Um, so I guess the best place to start is 
I was a freshman in high school and I went to public school in Arizona. I grew up in Phoenix. Um, so shout out to all my, you know, Phoenix friends. Um, and at the time, you know, you just kind of go into school, like you don't really think about the education you're receiving. And for two and a half class periods, um, kind of one random day, uh, we had quote unquote sexual health education, um, which was led by an individual who identified as a born again virgin. So, and and listen, I'm not here to like (laughs) poop on anybody's religious beliefs. Like if you believe in born again virginity, like absolutely like go you, that's great. But as a public health intervention for 14 year olds, like not, not the best, like don't recommend. Um, so yes, had, had these two and a half class periods of, again, quote unquote, sex ed with Mr. Born Again Virgin, who very vocally told us that the first time he had sex when he was 15, it was terrible. It was awful and it ruined his life. And so he asked Jesus to give him his, his virginity back. And he did, which again, great, good for you. Um, but yes, it was very much abstinence only based sex ed. And this, this was back in 2002, 2003, during the George Bush administration, George W. Bush administration. So at the time, the federal government was very much pushing abstinence only sex ed, do not, you know, tell people that sex exists outside of a very heterosexual marriage, all of that great, awesome messaging that is not sex positive. And so that was very much my experience. Like we had, I remember very vividly, we had an exercise where we had to take a piece of tape of like scotch tape and the instructor said, okay, so put it on your arm and then rip it off. And, you know, it's getting kind of gross and, you know, there's hairs on it. Okay. Put, the, put it back on your arm and rip it off again. Oh, it's not sticking very well. Yeah. It's not sticking very well. Oh, I don't, I don't like this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the last time he says, put that tape on your arm. Oh, tape's falling off. It's not very sticky anymore. And then he said, this is what happens when you have sex with more than one person. You you are not as committed oh, no. anymore. You're not sticky? That's, <laughs> You're that's not sticky. You're not. That is the moral of the story is that you will not be loyal to the one person who you're supposed to marry who, you know, is going, going to be the opposite sex of you because there are only two genders and you only are going to be attracted to the person who's opposite of the sex or gender. There's only one of those in the world. So good And there's only, there's only one of those in the world. And so if you have sex with more than one person, you will not be as committed. So therefore don't have sex before marriage. That was, that's just one example. So anyway, I, I mean, we can be like super frank on this podcast, right? Can we? Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Absolutely. Okay. So I remember the last day. Oh, this is another great anecdote. The last day of our <laughs> class, he gave us a little business card that said ATM on it. And ATM stood for abstinence till marriage. Oh. And he said, <laughs> I wish you could get audio of eye rolls. Like it would just be. Yeah. 
fantastic. Um, we often comment on them. Yes. So he gave us our ATM cards and he says, everybody needs to sign your card. This is your pledge. This is your promise that you are going to save yourself for marriage. And the next time you're like feeling feelings or getting, you know, hot and heavy with your with your boyfriend or girlfriend you just take out that card take that card out out of your wallet and look at it and remember the and your libido will be dashed and your libido will be dashed you will remember no I made this commitment and of course I signed it because I was like you know I have to sign this so I can pass the class and get get (laughs) on to my next class So, you know, I walk out of class with my little ATM card and a friend of mine, I just remember she runs up to me and she goes, Nellie, oh my God, Ashley just gave her boyfriend a blowjob in the bathroom. And that's when I said, I don't think this is going to (laughs) work. I don't think this, I don't think this class is what, what my fellow students and I need. Um, So. I just remember, I just, I just remember that very vividly. And then I, you know, a little bit later on, and, you know, this is really back in the day of the internet. um, I remember going home and like doing research. I was like, you know, this is very, this is very interesting. I want to know more about this and quickly realized the difference in abstinence only sex ed and comprehensive sexual health education. So I, I went to scarletteen.com and advocatesforyouth.org and thank I don't know, thankfully, like the algorithms weren't weird back then. So I could find this information very readily on the internet. Um, and I kind of accidentally became a sex educator. So I would, I have younger brothers and like I told my younger brothers like, oh, here's how conception works and here's how a condom works. And it just kind of became this thing that I felt very drawn to. And I think it was because it was just so stigmatized. And and I also remember very vividly in that class too, thinking, well, what about gay people? Because again, you know, this is 2002, gay people cannot get married. And at that point in time, this is like before Glee, this was before PFLAG, you know, this was before any of that. And so many of my classmates were closeted. So, I mean, it just was, it was so stigmatizing. It was so sex negative. And I think I just felt very drawn to bring it to light and for it to not be such a scary thing. And so I go to college and my college had a student education team that just focused on providing comprehensive sex ed to folks on campus. And so I joined the team right away and started, you know, teaching folks at freshman orientation, going to the sororities and fraternities, going to, you know, dorm meetings, just any group that would want us to come. And we were essentially just undoing everything that everybody had learned in their high school abstinence only education classes. Um, And also focusing very heavily on uh, preventing sexual abuse, Um, you know, especially on college campuses, making sure that people were aware of healthy and safe relationships and all of that good stuff. So I just kind of, I fell into that and followed that and just loved it. So that's, that was kind of, that's my origin story for the the sexual health piece. (laughs) Um, And then I guess, yeah. And then I guess I have a whole other story for disability rights. Um, But yeah, so 
I, I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder when I was 15. Um, I self-injured. I was very depressed, very anxious. Um, and thankfully had very supportive parents who took me to therapy and kind of helped me get the support I needed. Um, and I think I'm always like, I still struggle sometimes. I'm, I think I'm always going to have some type of anxiety. It's just how my brain works and that's fine. Like I'm, it's totally fine. I can manage it. I've gotten to the age where I know my triggers. I know when situations are going to, you know, cause me to start to spiral or start to feel the urge to self-injure. I take Zoloft regularly. I love Zoloft, everyone. Please, please don't be afraid to take your antidepressants. It is okay. Should not be stigmatized. Just, just go take, take the antidepressants if you need to. Um, so, so that's kind of my own personal experience um, with mental health, with disability. I also have an aunt who um, was paralyzed when she was 11. So she um, was born with some, some muscle, musculoskeletal, can't say that word. You all probably can because you're massage therapists, but <laughs> some, some musculoskeletal um, um, deformities. Um, uh, and so she, she was kind of born if you almost think like very, very severe scoliosis, she was kind of growing like uh. in a curve, like she was kind of growing sideways. Um, and this is back in the sixties. So by the time she was 10, 11 years old, the doctor said, you know, you can't continue to develop this way. Your organs are going to get crushed. You're not going to be able to live. We can correct your spine. We can straighten your spine for you, but it will leave you paralyzed. And so, you know, my oh, wow. grandparents made the decision, like, yes, like she can't, can't keep developing in a way where it's going to hurt her organs and shorten her lifespan. She'll have a much, you know, better quality of life actually, if she has the surgery. And so she had the surgery, she was paralyzed from the waist down, spent about a year in the hospital. And my mom said, once she got out of the hospital, uh, her school, which was right, right down the block, like not even a five minute walk away from their house, um, the school had said, well, you know, now that she's using a wheelchair, she can't come to school anymore. So she can't, you know, we can't provide services for her. Um, and my grandparents said, no, <laughs> um, no, she can go to school. And they actually went to the school and measured every single doorway in the school and said, her wheelchair will fit. She can come to school. And because there were steps going up to the front doors of the school, my grandfather had to take my aunt every day and carry her up the steps to school. Um, and so that was my, her experience, my mom's experience. This was her older sister, you know, kind of growing up in my experience, growing up with my aunt, she has a very full and independent life, had a full career working in a community college, had two children, got married, got divorced, you know, um, taking care of my grandmother actually now. And so I always had her as an example and growing up, my mom would point out, you know, oh, these buttons in the elevator are too high. Like Liz would never have been able to reach those. Thank goodness for the ADA. Thank goodness for the Americans with Disabilities Act. So I always just kind of grew up with that knowledge of this act and, and just creating accessible spaces for people with disabilities. And then even with my own experience as, you know, a person with a mental health condition, just what 
what it feels like to move through the world, you know, kind of with that history and, you know, how are people going to receive me professionally if I disclose that information or, you know, am I going to be given the mental health day at work if I ask for it? So, okay. All that being said, I'll, I'll wrap it up quick and stop talking. You all can ask more questions, but, um, I, (laughs) I, I went to, I went to school for social work and for public health. And I kind of had these two, two things that I really loved, right? I really loved sexual health education. I really love disability rights. I ended up working for a center for independent living right out of graduate school. And I don't know if y'all are familiar with um, centers for independent living at all. Um, But these are um, federally funded centers. So they're all over the United States. I worked for um, one in Raleigh, North Carolina. And they are very unique because they are what they consider consumer-led organizations. So by law, 51% of their staff and 51% of their board of directors have to self-identify as people with disabilities. And they provide information and referral, advocacy, peer mentoring, youth transition services. They just are amazing, amazing organizations, um, very much grassroots and we like to say in the disability community, nothing about us without us. So, you know, this is people with disabilities understanding and helping others. And so I worked there and I I loved it. And they actually had a sexual health class that they would teach one time a year, every February (laughs) for their youth program. And once I learned about it, I said, oh, please let me do it, please, please, please. And so my supervisor was like, yes, you know, go for it. Um, so started doing that and I, I tried to expand it. I tried to expand that class and I was able to do a little bit more with it, but of course it was just one piece of my whole day job there. So I didn't really get to do a whole, as much with it as I wanted to. And so that idea though, of, you know, kind of making sure that folks with disabilities also had access to this information is, is what kind of inspired me to to start my business and to um I guess kind of hyper focus in this area because I really don't think a lot of folks think about people with disabilities when they are thinking about access to comprehensive sex ed um so yeah that's my (laughs) that's my long journey to where I am today no I I love it there's oh there's so much there um thank you for, for sharing all that with us um Uh, there's like a hundred different directions to go, right? Um, I'm so glad that you mentioned like Scarletine. And by the way, people who are listening will put all these links in the show notes for you. Um, Yes. Yeah. And if there's anything else, send me later and I'll make sure it gets out to the people. Um, But as you were talking, I was thinking about this, this film that I think all of us or most of us at at Keelwell have seen, uh, Crip Camp. Yes, I I'm love Crip Camp. Familiar. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and there's a scene in this that, that like every time I talk about this movie, I'm like, no, you have to, that this is what happens to this, you know, this grown ass woman <laughs> who wants to have sex because she's a grown woman and she does um, and gets, I forget what the STD is. I think it was chlamydia or something. I think, and, yeah, I think so. Or gonorrhea, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah, but went I undiagnosed for months and months and months because her healthcare providers didn't even like it didn't even occur to them that yep. 
what she was experiencing could be related to an STD. Um, and, and I wonder if, uh, I guess just talk about <laughs> um, overall healthcare risks if, if like providers aren't recognizing that people with disabilities are also sexual beings. Yes, absolutely. And I'm glad you asked that because I think that's, you know, obviously we kind of have like education of the individual, right? Making sure the person with a disability knows their sexual health rights and understanding how their body works and how relationships should be and how to prevent abuse. But I really love focusing on providers and folks in the community because ultimately it's not just up to the individual to, to kind of be the only person advocating for themselves. We really do need a system to change for any true justice and equity to happen. Um, so yeah, um, I mean, essentially folks with disabilities, and this is kind of across all different types of dis disabilities, right? Physical, mental health, cognitive, um, sensory disabilities, like being blind or being deaf. Um, a lot of healthcare providers just don't really know how to address those individuals. And I think what often happens is either their disability gets ignored. So there could be something that's heavily contributing to their sexual well-being or their reproductive well-being that is, um, you know, kind of hand in hand with whatever their disability is. But there can also be cases where providers kind of hyper-focus on that. And they think, oh, well, you know, you're in a wheelchair, like, how can you have sex? Or, oh, well, you have an intellectual disability, you can't consent to sexual activity. And that's, that's not the case. I mean, there's such a wide spectrum of, of what disability is and how it impacts a person's personal relationships that, I mean, you just have to be able to meet the person where they are and ask those open-ended questions and get to know that individual and what their needs are and not make any assumptions, right? Because the assumption is very much that people with disabilities are innocent or they are asexual right. or they are not interested in sex. And that's just not the case. So yes, I, I think healthcare providers have a long way to go in their own education and how to really provide good quality, equitable care for folks. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, well, that's, that's part of what we want to like start talking about too. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, so Corey, what else? Yeah. Uh, so at Hewell, we're really big on educating people to educate others. Mm -hmm. um, and generally educating yourself is a very different task than educating somebody else. Um, so what kind of differences do you see when you're educating people with disabilities about themselves versus educating providers about talking to other people? Um, Ooh, that's an interesting question. Um, yeah, I mean, I think when, when I think about some of the individuals I've worked with, I think a lot of the times they have kind of, um, they kind of have internalized what their providers have told them or not told them. Right. Um, so I did I did work with a lot of folks with intellectual disabilities who just really had a very minimal knowledge of even just how their body works. So not knowing what a menstrual cycle was or what was happening during your menstrual cycle or how someone becomes pregnant. Just in some instances, I was the first person to tell them 
that, oh, the baby grows in your uterus. It doesn't grow in the stomach, right? So, and I think that's just born out of a lack of talking about it. Like, it's not even considered that, oh, I need to talk to this person about how their reproductive system works because they are going to use it um, one way or another. So I, I think in that case, talking with individuals, it really is just kind of providing that basic understanding and just letting them know that like, yes, you could become pregnant. I mean, unless your doctor tells you that you have infertility issues, like you could become pregnant or you could impregnate someone else. Um, you can have a relationship. You're, you're allowed to get married. You are allowed to access birth control the same way others do. Um, I think it's just kind of giving them that mindset that they can access all of these things the same way that non-disabled people do. And then to answer your question about providers, it's almost just the same, but flipped on its head of, you know, the, here are some of the things you need to consider, or here are some of the myths that you may have heard that, again, that people with disabilities can't consent to sexual relationships or that, you know, somehow somebody who's paralyzed, it's going to prevent them from becoming pregnant or being desirable um, or be at risk of abuse. I mean, that's, I think that's probably the biggest um, issue. The biggest concern is that if providers, whether they're medical providers, whether they're human services providers or whoever, if they're assuming that people with disabilities are not interested in sex or are asexual or are not sexual, sexually desirable, then they are probably also not concerned about abuse and assault. And the truth is that individuals with disabilities are in some instances seven times more likely to be sexually assaulted than non-disabled individuals. So I think that's that's probably the biggest sticking point that I see on the provider side is that if you're not thinking of individuals with disabilities as sexual human beings, you are inadvertently minimizing the risk that they have for STIs, for sexual assault, for, you know, other adverse outcomes that, that just come from being um, a sexual human being. Um, and I think just in general, people don't see sexual assault as a power and control issue. They just see it as a sex issue and it's not, it is a power and control issue. <laughs> so, but that kind of goes for, for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned the, the statistic about sexual assault. That was something that I was, I was sort of reading about and being horrified by, um, right before we got on this podcast, um, and I was listening to a, a, a Grand Rounds presentation, which I will try to remember to link to in the show notes, um, where the person offering the presentation was telling a story about one of her clients. Um, that basically the, the gist of it was that the person didn't receive the kind of comprehensive sex education that you offer. Um, so was assaulted. And didn't necessarily understand it as assault because they also didn't receive any kind of education in what relationships and consent and you know all of those things um, mean. Um, so I wonder, I guess, could you talk a little bit about um, what is the responsibility of providers, not just medical providers, but any person who is on this person's care team in supporting 
healthy relationships and consent mm -hmm. um, for people with disabilities. Absolutely. I mean, I think consent and communication are sometimes just the best foundation to work off of. And consent happens every day and it happens in every interaction. If you think about, you know, someone who is blind or has very low vision, right? I think a lot of folks have the instinct to touch them, right? Oh, here, let me help you. Let me guide you. They have the instinct mm -hmm. to reach out and to put hands on their body. Um, same thing with a person in a wheelchair. A lot of folks just have this com compulsive feeling to, oh, let me grab your handlebars and push you. Um, but mm -hmm. you would never walk up to someone on the street with a, you know, non-apparent disability and just start moving their shoulders around, right? As a, as a medical provider, I think, you know, best practices to say, oh, like, can I please exam you? Can I, can I touch you here? I'm going to put my hand right here. Um, I mean, same thing with, with any other situation. You always want to ask for consent um, before you're touching someone, before you are offering to assist them. I mean, just stopping and saying, hey, you know, can I, can I take your hand and guide you down the hallway? Um, do you need help navigating? Um, would you like me to push your wheelchair, right? And mm -hmm. also honoring whatever they say. If they say, nope, I'm good, just leave it at that. If, if someone, I actually had a colleague who used a wheelchair and anytime he was trying to open a door, people would rush up to him and try to open the door for him. And he said, no just let me open the door, right? So just ask, just ask first, right? Um, you know, don't make that assumption. And and again, just with, with any healthy communication and healthy consent, you know, you are asking for that consent and you are waiting for an enthusiastic yes, right? And if they give you a no, if they give you, oh, I'm not sure, if they seem uncomfortable, right? You have to check in and say, hey, are you really comfortable with me doing this right now? Um, is there something else I can do to make you feel more comfortable? Just giving that option to folks and letting them experience that practice of, oh, yes, I can say yes or no in this situation. That's something a lot of folks with disabilities are not given, um, especially young folks, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, if they're, they're often just kind of told, go do, or here, I'm just going to take you and move you over here. Um, very rarely you know, do they have the opportunity to, to say yes or no um, to assistance? And so really offering folks that choice just in those small daily interactions is going to add up to making a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this I think, intersects with um, really heavily with like what we do specifically as massage therapists. Um, as we've discovered in, in several like outside conversations, the talking about massage therapy and sex in the same room makes some people a little jumpy mm -hmm. um, for, for reasons that are, I, I get it, um, but our job is to touch people in a non-sexual mm -hmm. way, but our job is to touch people. Um, and a big part of that job is receiving informed consent yes. to touch these people. Um, and, and I wonder what you would, uh, advise like us as providers, if you were here educating us, um, or when you were here, because you're <laughs> here, so <laughs> educating us, um, like what is, what is the, how does our skillful handling, 
of informed consent in the massage practice help to support someone's healthy, intimate life? And what are some things that, that we should be aware of um, in practice? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, again, consent and communication, I think, you know, what you mentioned that upfront, right, there has to be some type of discussion, some type of agreement and informed consent. Um, I mean, same thing in your intimate relationships. And it isn't always, you know, oh, I'm going to pull out a contract and we're going to decide right now what sexual positions we're comfortable with. Like, right? No, that's, that's not what... That's not quite what I'm advocating for, but, you know, even if you think about the discussion of like, hey, what are we, you know, are we, are we boyfriend, girlfriend, are we significant others? Like, what what are we, right? Or, (laughs) hey, you know, like, I'm, I'm feeling, I'm feeling you tonight, right? Like you, you have some type of conversation and initiation before any type of intimate act. Um, And in addition to that, though, I think you have to kind of give people the opportunity to say no again right? Like giving them the opportunity to back out if they need to back out or to kind of cool down if they need to cool down. Um, I mean, just thinking of some, some massages I've had in the past, I, I think I tend to like tense up my butt a lot. <laughs> like I don't know what it is or kind of, you know, mm. like when I'm tensing my body, like my back and my butt tend to be very tense. And I remember I did go to um, a massage therapist who was like really focusing on my butt and I didn't really like feel a hundred percent comfortable with it. I was like, I know I'm tense down there, Mm -hmm. but like, I don't want you like just touching my butt during the session. Um, But just asking, right? Like, Hey, you know, like I'm going to, you know, continue to like work on this area. Is that okay? You know, Mm -hmm. just giving folks those check-ins. And again, even during like a really awesome like intimate sex session where you're having fun like oh do you like that yes I do keep going right those check-ins are just great ways to really determine like where that person is and to give them the option of being like oh hey no I need to like cool down for a minute or yes yes that feels really great right like whether it's intimate touch or whether it's massage therapy um just keeping that communication flowing throughout the session throughout your time together throughout that relationship is is I think a really good way to to do that yeah yeah absolutely that what else what else is out there Corey I know you have questions oh gracious um (laughs) so to to step to the side just slightly um I tend to think of sex educators in the same way I think of um, people who teach eighth grade as being very special people (laughs) who have chosen a very special job that I don't particularly want to do, but that is absolutely necessary for everyone to do. So um, you talk about just like (laughs) essentially starting to do this in high school when you were like, this information wasn't information and I don't like that. So I'm going to go find some and then telling other people Um, what do you notice when you start talking to people about sex, about like reactions? We, like Mm -hmm. Rebecca said, have like, it's come up a bit recently with massage and sex and this conversation that that we're really not having very well as a profession. And like, Mm -hmm. it's like, it's like rabbits, like people just (laughs) scatter when you bring it up. (laughs) Yeah. Rabbits, not in a sex way. Oh yeah. It's just like tiny little hat and bunnies. It's like disappearing. Um, so yeah. what I, I'd like to know what your experience is bringing it up and like 
do people always have the same reaction? Is it always different? Is it like reactions oh, you expect? Yeah. I, I feel like I either, I get one or the other. So I either get the pearl clutching, like, oh, 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 really? Or the, oh my, like that type of reaction. And I live in the South now. So it's a lot of like, oh my goodness, you know, <laughs> that type of a thing. Um, I either kind of get that reaction of folks being kind of surprised or like, oh my God, you you talk about that like voluntarily, really? Or I get the opposite where people go, oh my gosh, that's great. Can you please talk to my 14-year-old son? He really needs this information. Like it's it's like like you're either really cold or really hot. Like I kind of get get the far ends of that. Rarely do I get somebody in the middle who's like, oh, that's nice. Right. I get like, oh my goodness. Or I get, oh yes, please, like we need this so badly. Um which I feel like is just a small microcosm of how American culture views sexuality, right? It is either very hush-hush, very stigmatized, very sex negative, or it is like, yeah, like, oh yeah, like we're doing this, like kind of in the opposite direction. Um, yeah, that's, that's typically, and I, I mean, I don't know if I get more of one than the other. I feel like it's pretty even 50-50 split. Well, well, building on that, are there um, extra <laughs> or different reactions when um, you talk about your specific niche in sex education, where ah. you're talking about specifically, yeah, for folks with disabilities? Interestingly enough, no. I think it's. I think if anything, it probably skews a little bit more toward the. Oh my gosh, yes. Um, because I do think providers are starting to recognize that we need to talk about this, but they just have no clue what to do or how to start. Um, and I, obviously there's always, I think I am still running up in, into situations where someone's just like, ah, I just don't know if that's right. Or ah, I just don't know if that's going to be necessary, but more often I'm seeing the shift toward, oh, thank goodness that you do this because we need it, but we just do not know what to do or how to start. Yeah. Um, so how how do we start? That was my question. <laughs> yeah. You're like, like yes, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you, specifically for, um, I mean, I think I it would be slightly different, I think, if you're like someone's physician versus if you're their massage therapist, right? Or their, their uh, direct care worker or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so is there a sort of universal, this is how you start? Um, or do you have like specific sort of uh, recommendations mm -hmm. for people in the massage profession and other professions, et cetera? Yeah. And actually, I think I think the best way to start, I mean, there's not just one door to walk through, but I think the best way to start is to really internally kind of focus on your own implicit bias and mm. internalized ableism. If you kind of think, mm. and I, I'm sure y'all are very familiar with like diversity, equity, and inclusion work and kind of, right, like you start with your own bias and it's the same, I think, with disability. Disability is very much its own culture. It's its own aspect of diversity. It is a, you know, culture that needs inclusion, right? So I, a lot of the times when I am presenting 
the first thing I do is talk about myths, right? I talk about myths and I talk about values. You know, how do we think about sexuality? How do we think about disability? Where did our thoughts, feelings, and beliefs about disability come from growing up? You know, was it seen as something that was a result of sin? Was it seen as something that we should pity, right? And so really homing in on what our what our assumptions and biases are walking into the room and kind of what can we do to start addressing those and to start getting better examples of what disability looks like and also what sexuality looks like. Um, that's really, I think, the best place to start. Um, and then again, just like keeping the, the communication very open and flowing, asking questions, maybe even asking uncomfortable questions or, or acknowledging that you may not always get, get it right. You know, you may not always ask the, the question the correct way, but you should still ask, right? It's, a, it's totally okay to say like, hey, I'm not, I'm not really sure how to phrase this, but I, I just want to be able to help you the best way I can. And then asking the question. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of it really does start with just focusing on your, your own biases. And we all have them. I still have them, right? It's still something that I work through myself. Yeah, that's, oh man, why is the answer always the same? <laughs> I can't get the away from it. To go inward. <laughs> Wherever you go, you can't get away from yourself. But it's yes. true, right? It's, it's uh, that so much of the answers that we're looking for reside in our own um, internalized Yes, whatever that may be, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I, I do think on top of that, though, there are there is like a lot of disability etiquette training out there, and that's something I can provide. That's something that Centers for Independent Living provide of, again, just kind of some of the basics of, you know, don't just reach out and touch somebody if they are blind or if, or if they are deaf or if they use a wheelchair, right? Um you know, just really listening to that person and what their needs are, um, making sure that your, your physical space is accessible. So is it, um, you know, easy for someone to transfer from a wheelchair to the massage therapy table, right? Or if someone's using a white cane, are they going to be able to navigate into, you know, your office successfully? So there are some of those like very tactical um strategies that you can use as well. Um, but again, I think that kind of comes secondary to the, <laughs> to the looking inward, doing, doing some of that internal work. Um, but absolutely, I mean, making sure that if you are receiving someone in your office who is deaf or hard of hearing, you know, having a plan for communicating, um, making sure that if you have employees who are disabled, that your policies are reflective of their needs, you know, paid time off, paid sick leave, health insurance that has, you know, that covers the medicines they need, stuff like that. So there really is a lot and it really just, um, you know, it, it, it can be very comprehensive. I could talk through everything, but there's so much, but, but definitely right. looking into, we save um, that for later. yeah, we'll say, we'll save that for the symposium. Um, <laughs> that's right. Yes. That'll, that'll be the plug for the symposium, but yes, there are definitely very, um, tactical ways to make your practice more accessible for people with disabilities. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
I, I want to, unless Corey, you have a burning question. I actually have a, a slightly burning story. Please do. Oh, briefly. Yes. Go for it. Um, so I am, um, I am hypermobile and I'm still learning how to um, deal with my proprioception issues that I have now realized I have. Um, so I've gotten a lot better at navigating like floors and what's on the floor and where is it? And I'm like, I'm super, super aware of it now because there's a good chance that I could trip and fall and hurt myself and it'd be terrible. So, um, I own half a business, but I can't really do hands-on massage anymore. So I'm not usually at the business much anymore physically. Um, I work out of this lovely room instead. And, um, and I, I went to work one day to, um, put back these baskets that I had brought home and I opened the door to the room where most of the storage is. And I walked in one step and I was like, I'm going to die in this room and I'm going to die alone because oh. nobody is here. And there's wow. so much stuff on the floor and there's so many things. And a year and a half ago, I wouldn't even have thought about it. I would have just been like, that's fine. I can navigate that. It'll be cool. And then like a year and a half later, me was like, I'm going to put these baskets right next to the door and I'm going to close the door. And we're going to pretend this never happened and everything else in our space is totally accessible. Right. Because we're really, really conscious of it for all of our clients. Yes. But like that one room is no longer accessible for me. And I was like, that's very different. That's a very different like realization and thought to have. And I'm still very new with my disability stuff. So like, I think for people listening, even noticing the things that you don't do very well, whether it's like catch the door with your hand or like, closing your car door or like getting out of your car, like think of that. And then think of it as like more of an insurmountable thing than just sort of a thing that you think about right now. Like think about it as a, a thing that happens all of the time. And then yes. you can sort of start shifting your vision of what that is like to have a restriction like that kind of all the time. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I love that story. Thank you for sharing that story. Um, it was very surprising. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I think with, I mean, at least with my own experience and kind of doing this work and learning more about accessibility and universal design and all of these things, once you see it, you can't unsee it anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, once you start noticing how many places don't have a wheelchair ramp or, mm -hmm. you know, don't have accessible signage, it, you just start to go, oh my gosh, it really... You just can't not notice it anymore. Um, curbs. I notice curbs a lot now. Yes, curb cuts. Absolutely. Um, and the other thing I'll say too, again, because I love myth busting. I'm like the disability and sexuality myth buster. Um, yeah. We, <laughs> it, is, it is more likely that you will have a disability, that you will acquire a disability as you age than it is that you are going to be born with a disability. Um, mm. Again, like stereotypes, bias, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, often I think we think of disability and we think about children or we think about, um, you know, these old telethons where they had you know, kids with post-polio syndrome wheeled out into the stage and, oh, look at this poor little the Susie children. will never walk again. Oh, the children mm -hmm. donate 10 cents, right? That, so much of that pity <laughs> and that, <laughs> so much of that comes from, you know, just all of these stereotypes that were really pushed by, you know, by mainstream media, but um, less than 1% of children in America are born with their disability. You are much more likely to acquire your disability as you age. And so what I like to think about is anything that you create um, 
that is made more accessible will help you someday, right? If I have 12 steps going up to my front door, what am I going to do if I break my leg? Or what am I going to do if I start to lose my mobility or if I start to lose my vision? And these things happen. These things happen all the time. And so um, there's one there's one phrase in the disability community, a tab, where we're all just tabs. We are temporarily able-bodied. At some point, you are going to need oh, those. Like <laughs> T-A-B, you are a tab. You know, I like that a lot. Yes. At some yeah. point, you're going to need that stair rail. You are going to need the elevator. You are going to need that curb cut. So it's it's not just for this one particular piece of the population. It really is for everybody. Yeah. I love that you said that because it, it bears like hearing again. This regular listeners of the podcast may remember Ian Watlington, who's another disability rights um, activist who we had on who basically made the same point, like this is a continuum. And over Mm -hmm. the course of your life, I forget what the statistic, but it was more than 50%. You are this likely to develop a disability. Um, Yes. If I was more prepared, I even had like a slide that had this information on it, but I will, (laughs) I will maybe find that for you. We can put it in the show notes. notes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We can totally put it in the show notes. Um, But, oh yeah, I love that. Temporarily able-bodied. And that does also Um, I think it can, if we are able to take that in and really like hold hold that for real Mm -hmm. and not be like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's something that's going to happen later, but like hold that for real could also change our perspective in regards to the whole humanity, which includes the sexuality of people, all people, Mm -hmm. um, right. Cause there's, there's a, a way that, that you approach sexuality now that maybe you need to think about there might be a time where it's different absolutely I mean I even think about when I was pregnant a very Mm. different very different experience (laughs) right (laughs) um so yes and it's all throughout your lifespan and intimacy is going to look different ways to different people at different times and none of it is more or less valid at any given point in time I think that's also what I what I want to convey to the listeners, right? Just because, you know, you're not having penetrative sex right now, you know, maybe you're doing other things, maybe you're just cuddling, right? But like, all of it is good and and well and fine if it's consensual and makes you feel good. Um, But yeah, but it's, it's all throughout your entire life. Disability, I like to say, and I'll, I'll read this, you know, just to do some very shameless plugging of of my of my business do it it. yes (laughs) um i have i have six core values and the first two are that sexuality is a normal and natural part of the human condition and the second one is that disability is a normal and natural part of the human condition right on that's yeah yeah i love that um wow that's that's like a a good place to to leave everyone thinking about but I want to offer um Nellie is there any any uh, other points things that you want to make sure to leave people with sort of last not last word but you know <laughs> last word on the podcast <laughs> a semicolon. Because, yeah a semicolon. a semicolon yeah yeah I love it um I mean disabled people have sex 
that's <laughs> if I was going to have like a last word, that would be it. Um, so that's one of them. Semicolon. Um, if you do want to reach out to me, um, I do have a website, Accessible Sexual Health, all one word, AccessibleSexualHealth.com. You can reach out to me there. Um, I have AccessibleSexualHealth at gmail.com if you wanted to send me an email. Um, I'm located on the East Coast, but I will work with anyone and talk with anybody who wants to talk to me. So please talk to me. I'd love to talk to you because um, I'm passionate about this topic. <laughs> so yes, absolutely. And if you want to hear more from Nellie, please come to our symposium on September 24th, the Healthcare, Healwell's Healthcare and Intimacy Symposium. And definitely check out Nellie's website. This will all be in the show notes. Um, learn yourself up. That's what we <laughs> that's what we want you to do here. <laughs> um, so yeah, check out the, you can learn more about the symposium on our website, healwell.org. Um, if you want to continue this conversation, come to the Healwell community, community.healwell.org, where this month, the month of June, what are we talking about, Corey? Oh, we were talking about language and the power of our words. So yes. we are discussing multilingual situations and how words matter and what words you can use to change ideas, which is all of them, by the way. Um, and uh, we're doing a fun um, new live event on June 14th. We're doing a playthrough of a game called What Remains of Edith Finch, which is a story-based game about... Um, mortality and death because we are always cheerful in the community um but it's beautiful and whimsical and uh you should come check it out totally on brand for heal well yes um yes so come check us out in the community um check out our patreon where you can get early access to the podcasts and bonus materials this will all be in the show notes and um, thank you nelly for being here for educating us and i cannot wait to learn more from you at the symposium Oh, thank you all so much. Yes. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, we love you. We'll see you next week for episode whatever this is plus one. Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. New episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet. Uh, and you can send us an email at podcast at healwell.org. That's podcast at healwell.org. Thanks for listening.